With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This content may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. But I kept telling myself over and over that I was overreacting, and it was just my paranoia acting up, and there was nothing to worry about. Boy, was I wrong. In the middle of the left lane, out of the pitch black, there was a man standing there. Do you want me to knock you out as well? Do I have to stab someone to shut you up? Do I have to kill you? I'll knock you all out. You are all nothing. From Disturbed Media, join your host, Chad, for true tales of horror, bizarre happenings, and unexplainable events. This is Disturbed. Welcome back in, everyone, and thanks for joining me. This week, I'm bringing you three true horrifying tales and a listener voicemail that will terrify and horrify. So sit back and listen close as we dive into the horror. As the calendar changes and we roll along, something feels just a little bit different. The days shorten up. There's a crispness in the air. It's spooky season and you can feel it. No better time of year to get your fix of those spooky, scary stories. And as such, there's no better time to share the podcast with a friend so they can begin their own disturbing journey through our catalog of episodes. Now, while you're at it, consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you're listening. And keep in mind, our hotline is open to anyone and it's not just for story submissions. You can leave your comments there as well. Let me know what you think of the show. Disturbedpodcast.com slash hotline. And one last thing, stick around to the end of the episode for a special preview of the brand new episode of Disturbing Calls that just dropped and is now available on our Patreon. And with that, let's get you some of those spooky stories you crave. We open the show hearing from Reddit user Mysterious Armoire, featuring voice work by Sarah Thomas, and we have an unsettling run-in. At the time of this story, I was 21 and living in a major Midwestern city, attending the university there. Having lived there for only one month before my story began, I had witnessed a train stop stabbing, been yelled at by a crackhead, had a homeless guy follow me and threatened to choke me outside the physics building on campus, and watched a 13-car cop parade on a drug house just across the street. The area around the university is known for being rough and has a notoriously high rate of crime. We would get a few texts a week from the campus police saying things like there had been a robbery, a break-in, an assault, stalkings, attempted kidnappings, etc. 
I always ignored these texts, thinking foolishly that I would never be a victim because I was smart enough to stay out of trouble. Not go out alone late at night? All the cliches. I seriously regret this behavior now. And to anyone listening to this, please never think that you are 100% safe, no matter your level of preparedness. Always do your best to stay observant and careful. The first incident wasn't too unusual. I was just a block or two away from my apartment building one day in the early evening. It was still light outside. I was walking my dog, Sesame, a cute Shiba Inu who just looks like a fluffy, goofy puppy and has never been frightening or particularly protective in his life. As I was heading back home, I passed a small parking lot and in it, a large van. I could see a man in his early 60s sitting in the driver's seat smoking a cigarette. He was just staring at me. As I passed, he actually leaned out of his car and called out to me, Hey, you there. That's a cute dog. What's his name? I should mention this isn't even my first story like this. I have a pretty intense fear of strangers and actually struggle with PTSD from other incidents in my life. Being pretty wary for this reason, I ignored him and just walked faster. I heard a car door shut behind me and turned quickly to see that he had gotten out of his van and was slowly walking toward me. He called out to me again. Hey baby, I just want to see your dog, come back. His phrasing pissed me off and I gripped my dog's leash and started to speed walk away from him, starting to feel nervous. My heart was beginning to pound, but I kept telling myself over and over that I was overreacting and it was just my paranoia acting up and there was nothing to worry about. Boy, was I wrong. I managed to turn the corner and was about to cross the final park before getting to my apartment. In my fear over the van guy, I wasn't paying attention as much as I usually do to what was in front of me. I looked back over my shoulder and the guy had stopped following me. He was, however, standing in the middle of the sidewalk with a huge creepy grin on his face. I whirled back around with my eyes glued to my building. I only needed to walk another half block and I'd be home. I was going to get away from him and his creepy van. Just when I thought I was safe, a group of five or six men came from the side of the park I wasn't watching. They were all tall and intimidating in stature, and all of them were laughing and looking right at me. Out of the corner of my eye, the van guy had started walking towards me as well. I remember he was whistling. I again picked up my pace and desperately searched for my keys in my pocket as I hurried to the door. The group of men then veered towards me, partially cutting me off, and in all my stupid politeness, I stopped. They grinned at me with sick, perverted smiles, obviously checking me out, looking up and down my body. It made me sick. I tried not to panic and inched closer to my apartment. Hey, what's your name? Where are you going? What's your Snapchat? Is that your apartment? Can we come over? Do you smoke? They all barraged me with questions one after another. I tried to refuse them, stammering, no thank you. As I saw the van guy come and join their group, leering at me. While I inched away, they inched closer. One of them reached out for me, his fingers actually touching my arm. I leapt back, trying not to start crying. But Sesame suddenly lunged at them, his teeth bared, a horrifying snarl ripping from his throat. Every bit of cute Sheba personality was gone, 
and he looked like he wanted to tear one of these guys' throats out. It startled them enough that I was able to turn and sprint the final distance to my building, locking the door behind me. I fell to the floor inside my building, hugging Sesame. However, the entire front of my building was glass, and to my horror and disbelief, the group of men came and stood in front of the windows, grinning at me, laughing and making kissy faces and lewd gestures at me. The apartment manager came out and called the cops on them, but they ran away. I made it back home and scrubbed myself in the shower, crying and shaking with fear. Sesame got a special dinner that evening, and I kept telling myself that they just wanted to mess with me, and I was never in any real danger. Stupid of me, I know now. About a month later, when I had finally managed to be able to walk outside my apartment without severe anxiety, I was actually planning on moving a bit farther away from campus. It was still going to be in a sketchy neighborhood, but the thought of those men where I lived kept me up at night. My apartment actually hired a security guard to be there 24-7 after someone had broken into the building, smashed all the windows, destroyed some of the furniture, and stolen a bunch of bikes. Of course, my bike got stolen. Anyways, I was heading home from class and it was a beautiful day. I actually felt pretty happy for once and popped my earbuds in on the last few blocks before I got home. Stupid, I know. After a block or so, I started to feel like someone was watching me. My palms started sweating. I glanced behind me, trying not to look obvious, and a tall man was about 20 feet behind me, staring straight at me. I snapped my head back around and ripped out my earbuds. No, 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 I thought. It can't be one of them. I was just jumping to conclusions, giving my anxiety disorder and paranoia, surely but there was something familiar about him. My heart started racing as I hoped to God the others weren't waiting for me around the corner of my building, ready to jump me. I walked faster, wishing Sesame was with me. I was too afraid to look back at him as I fumbled with my keys and wrenched the door open as hard as I could. This turned out to be a crucial mistake. As I ran to the elevator, trying to breathe a sigh of relief, I saw with absolute horror that the man had caught the door I had thrown wide open and was slowly coming into the building with me. He paused, standing away from me, but close enough that I could hear his ragged breathing and smell alcohol coming off of him. My heart was thudding in my chest now, and I struggled to think clearly. The apartment manager was already home for the day, and I was completely alone in the lobby. There were no other doors out of that room, and the stranger was blocking my way to the door. The security guard supposed to be keeping an eye on the building was nowhere to be seen. The elevator came, and I tried to run into it and slam my hand over the door close button as fast as I could. I pushed my floor button and huddled in the far corner of the elevator. I started to once again try to catch my breath, but right when the door was almost closed, he stuck his hand in. I couldn't believe it. He waited until the door was just about to close, and then he stopped it. He was standing close enough that there was no way that was a mistake. My stomach dropped, and a suffocating sense of dread crept in. I kept my head down as he joined me. My desperate hope that he was just a dirty, drunken resident of the building was dashed when he didn't press any buttons. I don't know why I didn't run out of the elevator or try to leave the building again. I was paralyzed with fear, and all I could do was watch as the door closed and sealed my fate. The elevator was filled with the stench of alcohol and B.O. 
If I wasn't so terrified, I may have gagged. It was nauseating. I couldn't look at him. I couldn't move. I tried to scream at myself in my head to press the wrong button and try to escape him, but I was completely petrified. He leaned closer to me, and I heard him breathe in deeply and very quietly sigh, like he was content. I felt tears well in my eyes, and the seconds it took to reach the top floor where I lived felt like hours. I saw no way I could escape the sick, drunk guy who was smelling me. In the reflection of the elevator walls, I could make out his disgusting smile. He was staring directly at me, his hands in his pockets, clearly holding on to something. I'm not religious, but I prayed that I would make it to my door in time. I realized he probably wasn't going to attack me in the elevator. There was a large camera in the ceiling. I looked up at it, feeling a tear spill out of my eye as I did so, hoping that whoever saw the tape eventually would identify this man. The worst part of all of this is that I've trained in martial arts and self-defense since I was about eight years old. I thought of myself as stronger and braver than I was acting. I should know what to do. I should be strong enough to do it. But no matter how many times I had disarmed, thrown, or choked out attackers in the studio, nothing totally prepares you for the dread of a real-life situation. As the elevator reached my floor, I managed to snap out of my stupor long enough to dash through the door and run to my apartment unit. I nearly missed the keyhole, but I threw open my door. I was nearly through when my backpack snagged on the outside handle of the door, trapping me. I heard the man walking quickly to my door, a low chuckle building in his throat as he watched me panic and struggle to get free. I felt like a mouse being watched by a cat, trapped and helpless, so close to escaping. I finally gave up and shoved my arms through the straps, abandoning my backpack. As I did so, the man suddenly reached out for me. I was able to slam the door shut, deadbolting it. The gust of air from the door slamming brought his disgusting smell in with me, and in my terror and disgust, I retched violently. I looked through the peephole. He was staring right at me, pressing his forehead against the door, his mouth bent in a furious scowl. He swore at me and ripped my backpack off the handle of the door, slamming it to the ground. I winced as I heard my laptop thud. I was still too terrified to say anything, but I grabbed the knife I kept by my door in my hand, ready if he tried anything. After a few minutes of staring at my door, jiggling the handle, licking the peephole and making obscene motions at it. He unzipped my backpack, dumping its contents on the floor. He picked up my bag, sniffing it and leering at the peephole as he did so, like he knew I was watching him. I couldn't look away, again paralyzed in fear. Finally, he left, using the elevator visible from my door like nothing had happened. I continued to stare out the peephole for what felt like an eternity, and then finally called the apartment manager, feeling my anger sinking in that the security guard hadn't been anywhere in sight, not paying attention. It turns out, he had fallen asleep eating Taco Bell and watching movies on his phone. He was only 10 feet away from the elevator the entire time, sleeping in the office behind a closed door. They fired him, but the creepy guy was never caught, and neither were any of the others. I don't even know for sure if this man was part of the original group. I was honestly too terrified to look much at their faces during the first incident. 
I moved out of my apartment a week later, staying with my boyfriend at the time for the remainder of my lease and keeping Sesame with me at all times when possible. A few more things happened while I lived in that city, from having to call in a gunfight from outside my new apartment window, to having to pick up my friend who was being followed by a van, to having to evacuate during an arson incident. There are nice things about that city too, but during my time there, besides learning that the police department was absolutely useless and corrupt, to nearly escaping with my life multiple times, I couldn't be happier to be far, far away from there and doing a lot better with my fear and anxiety. Are you listening alone? Rather brave of you. Next up, we check in with Reddit user Bertovibe, featuring voice work by Matt Bradford. And we meet the aimless man. What I'm about to tell you is going to sound hard to believe, but I swear it happened, and I have a friend that saw exactly what I saw. So first, to give some context, when I was a teen, I lived with my Mexican-American family in a Southern Virginia sleepy town like most others in the middle of nowhere. We lived out in the sticks, as they say. Both my parents are blue-collar workers. My mother worked night shift at a local hospital in housekeeping, and my dad used to work in agriculture jobs where he made other friends from Mexico who would come to work in the summers. Well, these friends of his would go to the local 24-hour big-chain grocery store to do their shopping late at night since they spent the days working. And I tell you this because my mother and my dad's friends used to head home using the same stretch of desolate road late at night, and the nights are dark on these lonely back roads. Well, my mother once told me a story about driving back home from work one night. She was behind a state trooper a few car lengths back on this particular piece of country road. There is a long straightaway right before you get to some creepy curbs, before a church and a cemetery. It must have been around 3am. She noticed the trooper slow down, so she did too. There was a strange man in the middle of the left lane, but the officer surprisingly took off just as quick as he was next to the man, seemingly without even addressing him. And my mother, being the careful woman she is, also said nope and drove by the man. If the officer felt no need to intervene, she wasn't either. But something was off about this guy. He seemed to just stand there, without much care for anything else. It was so dark as she drove by him to make out anything else but a quick outline and an uneasy feeling. Then she remembered a story my dad's friend had told her about seeing a similar man on the same stretch of road. Aimless, standing in the dark, looking down the dark straight away as if he was lost but not asking for help or much aware of anyone or anything else. They also did not take any chances by stopping to ask, but they too had that uneasy feeling, enough to tell the story to my parents. Shivers went down my mother's spine, but all she could do was hurry home to tell me about this peculiar occurrence the next day. So that happened to my mom in the summer, and what I'm about to tell you happened to me and my friend in November of that same year on a cold, dark winter night as we were going home from a high school party. I was actually staying the night at my friend's house. He lived not too far up from where the before-mentioned stretch of road was. I lived much further into the country, so his place was usually our crash pad. Plus, he had his own cabin behind his parents' house, which was pretty cool. So, it's around 3am. 
We were on our way there from a party, and yeah, we had drank, and yeah, I probably smoked some pot. And no, I probably should not have been driving, but it had been a while since my last drink. And you know, I was a teenager who did not make the best choices. However, we were not drunk, nor was I high by this point. And my friend didn't even smoke, but I was getting a good kick out of freaking him out by telling him the story my mother had told me. And to even further test his courage, I boasted that I would pick the man up and give him a ride. Dumb mistake. As I turned the corner to the road where that man had been seen, we talked about what normal teenagers talk about. You know, girls, school, dumb guy jokes. The creepiness about this strange man story had left us long ago. But as I headed down the dark straightaway, I saw something. In the middle of the left lane, out of the pitch black, there was a man standing there, becoming brighter as my car's headlights creeped closer, and I began to slow down. Did someone wreck? I asked my buddy. I don't know, he replied. I'll see if he needs help. I was honestly thinking it was someone in distress. You would think I would have remembered my mother's story, but in that moment, when you know you are seeing another person, you want to know what's going on, and the supernatural is last on that list. As I approached him, I slowed my car nearly to a stop. He went from lit up right from my headlights to a dark silhouette from now being next to my car, but I could still see him fairly clearly. Now, remember, it was November, so I had the heat on, but all of a sudden, a chill cooled the inside of my car, and I could see my breath as it began to register what I was seeing. A young, abnormally pale, blonde-haired man with a white button-up shirt and thin stripes khakis, what seemed like a hoodie or sweater tied around his waist and a backpack on. And remember again, this is winter and he was just in a shirt basically. The most horrifying part though were his eyes, pitch black, sunken, almost seemed like they weren't even there. He made no gestures or sudden movements, just stood there, aimless, looking at me almost through me. Fear jolted through my body and that moment felt endless. As the man and I are looking at each other, I hear my buddy yell, don't stop, go, which triggers me to hit the gas. I'll never forget seeing the man through my rearview mirror and the dim red hue of my taillights slowly raise his arm and turn towards us as we sped off. He disappeared back into the night as we pulled away. We were so shocked and scared we drove over 30 minutes in the opposite direction to another friend's house who he woke up by banging on his door. We just had to tell someone immediately, and there was no way we were staying in a solitary cabin that night. He didn't believe us at first, but after years of us telling the same story, he now knows we saw something terrible. The only person that believed us, no questions asked, immediately, was my mother. We need to get rid of some evidence. Don't go anywhere. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer 
and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Ever heard of stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of stoicism with a lowercase s and not stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Now back to the deliciously frightful. Disturbed Podcast with your host, Chad. Up next, we have a listener voicemail from Mason, and he details a horrifying experience. Hey guys, just wanted to let you know that I love your guys' podcast. It's a very good podcast. I listen to it my way to school, way from school, workouts, you name it. I actually have my own story. It's not, I guess it's not my own story. It's my mom's story, but I've heard it so many times. It's like my own story. So my mom... Back in when she was like 13 or 14, she lived in Louisiana. This is a true story too. I'm switching names around because I don't want to like give away who my mom is or stuff like that. And I will not be saying the dude's name because I don't want to give him credit because that's what he wanted. But so when my mom was 13 or 14, her and her best friend were Girl Scouts. They would go door to door and sell cookies and candy bars and whatever, stuff like that. So one night, my mom was sick, so she couldn't go on the route with her friend. Before school, she called her friend, her friend's mom, called her house phone, said, hey, I'm sick. I'm not going to be able to do the delivery tonight, but I'll be at school. You should just come over after you're done with the delivery and we'll have a sleepover. And her mom was like, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. Okay, I'll let her know after the delivery. She's like, okay, goes to school and then goes home. And obviously my mom's sick, doesn't go with her. Her friend doesn't show up at the time she should have showed up. Never comes over, never comes over. So my mom just goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, goes to school. Her friend's not at school either. We can call her friend Amy. Amy's not at school. My mom's kind of worrying. She doesn't think anything like bad happened to her. Maybe she thinks something just had to come up and her and her mom went somewhere or something like that. But I think my mom was in third period. The police came in and pulled her out and said, hey, this is what happened. So on Amy's delivery, she came across this dude's house. She said her line like, hey, 
buying, I'm selling candy bars. You want to buy some? And he said, yes, come in with me while I get my wallet so I can give you the money. She probably said, uh, okay. She went in anyway. And she was uh, stabbed 47 times, dismembered, and put into a series of trash bags, which then he drove to the landfill, threw them in the landfill. And the next day, he turned himself in because he felt so bad. And turned himself in. He brought police to his house. It obviously was a murder scene. And so they tore and dug into that landfill. Never found nothing. Even showed him the exact place where he dropped all the trash bags. Never found anything of Amy. This is more of just a saying like, don't trust everyone you meet, stranger danger, like just that. Just be safe when you're doing something. Just be weary. Maybe even carry a knife with you. Or if you are armed, you carry your handgun. But just be safe. Be protected. Yeah, it's scary reality story. This is what can happen. But thank you guys. Are you terrified yet? You will be. And finally, we close out the show with an email submission from Mark, featuring voice work by Tom Eglio, and we encounter the man from the woods. So me and my friend are very outdoorsy type people, and we had decided to take a trip that involved five days of canoeing and wild camping across various locks in Scotland. On around day three of our trip, we had been paddling for 10 hours and decided to pull in the canoe to a small beach and camp in the surrounding woods for the night. We noticed that there were some people around a little further up the beach, but we were tired, and although we would normally like to be secluded, there wasn't much suitable ground for pitching tents. So we decided it'd be fine just one night and set up camp about 20 meters away from them. This area of the woods was very secluded. Other than us and this other group of like five or six people, there was no one around for a while. We had noticed an official paid campsite as we'd paddled down, but that was around a half a kilometer back along the river from where we had decided to camp. This will come in later. You meet a lot of quirky people when you do wild camping. That's not unusual, and this other group of campers seemed like no exception to that rule. They were clearly very loud and a little messy. The beach where they had been was covered in rubbish, and they seemed to have been drinking even early in the evening. There was lots of loud, jovial singing initially, but nothing too concerning at that point. The first strange thing to happen was just after we'd set up our tents, I was sat inside my tent with the entrance open. My friend was in hers, hers was zipped up, and it was starting to get dark when two men came over from the small group camping nearby. I could only make out their silhouettes as they walked right up to my tent. One was older and kind of a wiry build, and the other was short and stocky. But they were speaking in a friendly kind of way, they had beers and offered me some. They also asked if I wanted to come and drink with them. Something felt off and I said no thank you because we were waking up early in the morning to paddle. They mentioned that they came camping to this part of the woods every year and it was their special spot. I told them it was a beautiful place and they were lucky to live near to somewhere so nice. It was a little unusual that they had come to speak to me whilst I was sat in my tent. I wasn't outside it and I hadn't made any gesture to them to indicate I was open to a conversation, but they decided to come over and sit a foot away from the entrance to my tent anyway. Even though I could tell these guys were a little unusual, they didn't seem confrontational or anything at this point and I eventually started to relax again. At this point, one of them mentioned that there was a third guy camping with them. They said that he had been drinking heavily, drinking shots as well as beers, and that he was 
kind of a pain even when he was sober. They were lowering their voices as they said this and looking shifting back over to where this group was camped. I made some joke about how it sounded like they had their work cut out for them and then made it clear that I was ready to go to sleep. They left to join the rest of their group and I closed my tent. The first time I woke up in the night was around 90 minutes later. The group was shouting really loudly from their spot in the woods. It was clear that at the least they weren't concerned about waking us up, but more than that, they seemed to want to. I couldn't make out everything they were saying, some of it was just yelling crazy noises, but one of the things I heard clearly was, this is our property. It wasn't their property, it was a national park, but they clearly felt like we had intruded. I felt really uncomfortable at this point, it was clear that they didn't want us to be there and they seemed to want to intimidate us. But there wasn't much we could do. It was late at night, it was dark, and we couldn't just pack up and leave. Where would we go in total darkness? We would need to wait until the morning. Besides, I assured myself, those two men from earlier didn't seem to have any anger towards us, so maybe we'd be fine. I somehow managed to get back to sleep for another hour, and when I woke up the second time, I experienced something I had never experienced before in my life. The attention and anger in the group seemed to have drifted away from us and towards each other. There was loud arguing between some men, and after a while, we heard the sound of scuffling. It sounded like one of the men was being aggressive towards someone and a fight had broken out. The scuffling went on for a while. The group that had been loud all night was pretty quiet except for the noises of this struggle. Suddenly, the scuffling stopped. One of the men had stopped speaking and only one man's voice was shouting loudly at the rest of the people. Shut up, shut up, he was saying to a woman with them who was screaming loudly at whatever he had just done. Do you want me to knock you out as well? Do I have to stab someone to shut you up? Do I have to kill you? I'll knock you all out. You are all nothing, nothing. Somewhere in the middle of this, I had decided to call the police. In silence, the group of campers were close enough that they would have heard me on the phone, but with all the chaos, I could speak without them hearing. Luckily, I had signal enough to make the call. I called the police and gave them the coordinates you can see from a location pin on Google Maps, as well as the name of the campsite that was half a kilometer back along the river from where we were. It was the only landmark nearby. The police could hear everything that was going on in the background of our phone call, and luckily it seemed as though the group, or the man at least, had forgotten that we were camped so close, for now, anyway. Looking back, I wonder whether the two men that had approached our tents earlier knew this might happen and were looking for people to help if things got really bad. The police had told me they were on their way, but there were no roads nearby and we knew it was going to take a while for them to get there. As the situation seemed to be getting more intense by the second, I whispered to my friend that we should get out of there. I had told her I was calling the police and she was as on edge as I was. We agreed not to use torches until we were further away so as not to draw any attention to ourselves, so we fumbled around in the dark and grabbed what we could. I got some trainers, my phone, and a small camping knife. Not exactly ideal, but better than nothing. We left our tents and walked in the darkness of the woods until we felt we were far enough away to use the torches. Our hearts were pounding and we were so freaked out we could hardly even breathe, let alone think straight. The screaming behind us had been getting louder and things showed no signs of calming down. People can say some crazy things, and who can ever know how much they mean what they say? But what I will never forget is the screams of that woman. I don't know what she had seen or what that man had done, but she screamed and cried until there was no air left in her lungs. There was no room for doubting the seriousness of the situation after hearing the noise. Using torches helped a bit, but not much. It was still pitch black woodland with no real landmarks, but eventually we found the beach and followed it to a small side river that crossed to the official campsite we had seen earlier. My friends and I were looking for a way to cross the river when we saw the police driving along a dirt road on the other side. We got there just in time. Luckily, the river wasn't deeper than waist height, though we didn't know that until we started to cross. I boosted my friend up the tall river bank and she flagged down the first police car so we could tell them where to go. 
There must have been at least seven officers convinced of the urgency from what they could hear over the phone when I had called them. Thank God the cavalry had arrived. They told us to walk on to the official campsite and wait for them there while they resolved the situation. It wasn't ideal, but at least there would be people there in case anything else went wrong. Two hours went by and we could hear the engines of the police cars idling in the distance of the valley. This was a rural area with only one real road and while much of the noise from the woods was muffled, the noise from the road traveled well. At some point we heard dogs barking and men yelling and eventually the noise of doors closing and cars driving away. We waited a while longer for the police to return to see us but no one showed. We thought it was over at that point but we were wrong. After a while I called the police to ask why they hadn't come back to see us and to find out what they wanted us to do. They had returned to the police station which was nearly an hour's drive from our location since we were camping so far out. And although they had removed someone from the group who had clearly been assaulted and taken them away for their own safety, no one was admitting a crime had taken place, including the person that had obviously been assaulted. The police said they knew the people that were camping well. They were part of a family that was kind of notorious in that area and they hated talking to the police. Plus, some were probably scared of what that man might do to them if they did. So the police hadn't been able to make any arrests. They said they had no choice but to leave the rest of the group at the campsite. So here we were, soaking wet from wading across a river with only the things we had been able to grab in the dark before we fled our tents. Neither of us had our wallets, my friend didn't even have shoes on her feet. And what's worse, all our stuff was now 20 meters away from at least one aggressive drunk in a group that hated people talking to the police and that must have known we were the ones to call them. After all, there was no one else around but us. The officer on the phone admitted they should have helped us leave while they were still in the area but that now they were so far away they were extremely busy and they wouldn't be able to help come back just to supervise us gathering our stuff and leaving. They said that the police have limited resources and have to prioritize dealing with things that are happening rather than things that might happen. Basically, if this drunk aggressive man spots us and attacks us while we're trying to gather our stuff, we could call them back and report them then. It was like something you'd read in a horror story, not something that could actually happen to us. But from the police perspective, the issue was resolved and we were on our own. I waited until 8.30am when we figured they'd be sleeping off the heavy night and people might start walking along a nearby walking track that ran through the woods by our tents. I went and left my friend at the campsite. I crept up to where we had camped and started taking down the tents as quietly as I could. Luckily, as I was doing this, I spotted a jogger coming past on the woodland track. He was obviously skeptical of my story, but he was a pretty athletic looking guy and he agreed to keep watch while I loaded our canoe with the tents and other various items. He was camped in the official campsite with his girlfriend where my friend was wading along the river and had agreed to carry a few things over there while I took the rest in the canoe. My heart was still racing, but I felt some comfort knowing this guy would at least have my back if anyone came over from the spot next to ours. As I finished loading up the canoe and cast off from the beach, I paddled a couple of times and got far enough from the shore to know I was out of danger. I felt the weight of the world lift off my shoulders and the finish line to many of the stories on this podcast popped into my head. To the family in the woods and that aggressive man, let's never meet again. Now before we go, and as promised, here's a sneak peek into the brand new episode of Disturbing Calls, just released on Monday. Nine one one, where's your emergency? Uh, there's been a shooting at Borderline. Oh my God! How high is the water? It's up to my window. Yeah, there's gunshots still inside. I've been, I've been hit 
I'm bleeding everywhere. People are running everywhere. My friends are inside. Yeah, I just killed my brother. Um, I got heart problems and my heart's beating out of my chest right now. All right. Car drove into the river. She is still in the car at this time. She cannot get out. The water is up to the windows. Yeah, there was uh, the security guard was dead. The two people working at the there was two people dead. I stabbed him three times, one in the back, twice in the throat. Come get me right now. I turned myself in. Him and his girlfriend are tied up in the basement. Everybody just down, hunker down, right behind here, okay? Oh my god, I'm gonna drown, ain't I? I the police were out here earlier and did absolutely nothing. There's a person dead? Yeah, come on, I need somebody, help me. It's really bad right now. Cut. It's coming through. Please hurry up. You're unconscious, ma'am! Oh my god. This full episode, along with 18 other bonus episodes of Disturbing Calls, are available right now to everyone in the $5 level and higher at patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast. Don't forget you can send in your own true terrifying tale. Head over to disturbedpodcast.com slash submit to find out how. If you'd like to support the show and gain access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and early releases, visit patreon.com slash disturbedpodcast or find the link in the show notes. And a big thanks to our newest supporters, Chad H., Caitlin O'Brocky, James Bowie, Jeremy York, Cassie, and Rachel Carl. Thanks so much for your support. Music by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio, Code.ag, and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.